read, beginning in verse 1. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law when in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension among the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees, of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your word and for um, just your, your work in our lives to understand your love for us and to love you in response. We do, God, want to hear from you, be ministered by uh, you, because we need you and we've been made for you and by you. And, and, um, and our souls, Lord, just long to hear your word and to um, have you minister to us. And we pray that you would do so, God, in accordance with your spirit and your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> My welcome, too, on behalf of the church, for the students that are here from His Hill. Um, we have 17 new students with us. A lot of them are Canadians. They came down here hoping to escape the weather. <laughs> and we're having Canada Day outside. It's great to have them with us. I do have one more announcement um, to make, and that is, despite the Canadian weather outside, there is a um, sister in the Lord, um, single woman and her mother, who have an apartment very near the church here, and they need help moving from an upstairs apartment to a downstairs apartment. One is right above the other. Um, so I need, I'm going to be doing it, my son Ryan. And if so there's any men that are available to help, let me know. Shouldn't take more than a half an hour. And um, if any of the guys from His Hill volunteer, three or four guys, I'll even buy you lunch afterwards and take you back, maybe. Um, <laughs> so let me know after church on that. So I want to go back before we look at the section we just read and go back to Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 22, because I, I read this last week, but we didn't get to it. I spent most of the time, all the time, talking in the first part of chapter 22 about Paul's um, testimony that he gave before um, the Jewish people there in the temple compound. But in verse 22, and after they had been listening to him, and, and, he, and he gives the account where Jesus had said to him, these people aren't going to listen to you, go to the Gentiles, and a riot breaks out again. And so once again, the commander of the, of the Roman army that was stationed there in Jerusalem had to intervene to, to save Paul's life. He does this three times. And it says, and they, verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, um, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Now, the commander has figured out that Paul is not the Egyptian rebel and assassin that he thought he was, but he doesn't yet know that he's a Roman. 
And so this would have just been standard fare. You want to know the truth? Just torture them, and you'll get the truth. Which is interesting, because I, you know, that we not too distant um, in our um, politics here, there was a, a, an ongoing debate about um, the value of torture. And, um, and there were people like our former Senator McCain who were saying, it never works. Um, I'm not advocating for it, <laughs> trust me. Um, it, but to say that it never works is, to me, that's just absurd. It has worked, doesn't always work, but it has worked from the beginning of time. And, and the Romans knew it worked. Now, you can get a false confession from people through torture, too. We understand that. But that's not to say every confession is a false confession. Every parent knows it works. Now, I'm not talking about putting thumbscrews on the kids or putting them on the rack. But every, every kid knows they would rather obey than be in trouble, whether that's corporal or even a timeout where they have to sit and stare at the wall for a while. I grew up at a time where teachers would at least, the minimum they would do is put a circle on the chalkboard and you had to stand and put your nose in the circle. And, um, and it was amazing how sometimes that, if they were looking for the truth, that's what it would take because you didn't want to stand there and be humiliated. But this guy is about to scourge Paul. It's a serious business. People sometimes died from scourging. Paul has been scourged at other times in his life. He knows what it's about. And on this occasion, he says, um, before you start, <laughs> amazing how reasonable he was, you know, before we you know, go, get off to a really bad day here, my day especially, he says, you maybe want to know that I'm a Roman citizen. Well, that stopped everything. It says in verse 25, and when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and is uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander, his boss, and told him, saying, What are you about to do, for this man is a Roman? And the commander came out and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. We don't know how his father got Roman citizenship, but Paul's father and mother were both Jews. But it must have been, historians believe, that Paul's father must have done some great service for a powerful Roman citizen, and that Roman citizen, politician, senator, whatever, would have conferred citizenship upon Paul's father. Maybe Paul's father was a soldier, and he distinguished himself in some battle, and he won his citizenship that way. But Paul was born a citizen because of his father's citizenship. And so... Paul says, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So they release him from the chains. They release him from being scourged, but they don't release him from the Roman barracks. And he stays in the barracks for his own protection. And the commander still wants to find out what's going on with Paul. So he sets up this interview with the Sanhedrin council to discover what's going on. Now, before we get to that, and I was going to do this last week, and, and that is I wanted just to stop and take some time to look at what Paul has just done, which I don't think anybody would object to, that he has, has averted scourging, torture, by simply appealing to his civil liberties that he had as a Roman citizen. So he didn't just pray about this. He had another avenue besides praying, and I'm sure he was praying. But he said, I have rights as a Roman citizen. And he appeals to those rights, to his civil liberties. And in this instance, those civil liberties are recognized, and he's um, unstrapped, and, and he avoids the scourging. And so we, I think most of us, as good Americans at least, we would say, not a problem. There's nothing wrong with holding the government accountable to do what it's supposed to do. And it would be illegal for them to punish Paul as they were planning on doing, because a citizen has rights. 
And no Roman citizen could be scourged unless he had first been found guilty and was under some kind of sentence. Then you could do so. But you can't scourge him in order to find out his guilt. That's against the law. And so Paul is appealing to his rights as a citizen. And so that brings in the whole question of church and state. And isn't it interesting that since last week, when I was planning on preaching on this, that we had a little bit of a riot going on in Washington, D.C. Um, and it was awful. And some people lost their lives, Capitol building broken into, all kinds of bad things being done. Was that legitimate? Was that a good thing? I personally don't think it was. I think most of us would be in agreement with that. But um, this, is, this is a very um, big thing. And I have to tell you, um, you know, even though I'm old enough to, have said, to say that I lived through the civil rights protest and all that went on, and I can remember the images of the riots on the Berkeley campus and the National Guard being called out and the National Guard being called out to Little Rock, Arkansas, and um, I can remember Vietnam and all the protests that were taking place, and I can remember the forced segregation of the schools and all that was going on in protest to that, um, integration of the schools, I should say. And there have been a number of things that have taken place. I remember six years old when John F. Kennedy was shot. I can tell you right where I was when, you know, when I heard that news, things like that you don't forget. And, um, and there have been a number of things that have happened um, in my life, but... I've never gone to war. Um, I was too young to go off to Vietnam, thankfully. And um, there haven't been any other calls up to war um, since that time. And, um, and honestly, even though through the years, going through Bible college and seminary and taking classes in ethics and stuff, and I've got a couple writers that I really like when, on ethics, Norman Geisler, Robertson McQuilkin, those two in particular, they've written extensively on Christian ethics, and one of the things they write about is the role of the Christian in relation to government, and is it ever right to revolt? And, um, and I appreciate what they wrote. But it just seems like, for me, it's just all been kind of interesting, theoretical, and all of a sudden it's feeling like, I've never really thought about this. And because of what's going on today in our society. Um, the interesting that the, in the Lord's timing today, my dad um, informed us about India and Satish and the ministry there that Torchbearers has, and, and I was um, I'm FaceTiming with Satish this week. Things are really, really heating up in India and, um, for Christians. And they, they are, um, the Hindu government is the most radical Hindu government they've ever had, and they are truly trying to make India a Hindu nation. They, they are going to, if they have their way, they will forcefully convert every non-Hindu to Hinduism. And they are already building camps um, to hold people. And one camp already has um, 50,000 people being held in it who have, not, who, who, who have not converted to Hinduism. They are looking at people who are getting married. And, um, and they will, once they've gotten married, they look at their lives. And if they find out that either of the two people was previously Hindu, um, they're throwing them in jail because it's against the law to convert. And so you spend your honeymoon in jail um, because you converted sometime in the past. Maybe been, it may have been your parents that converted. But um, um, they're very, very serious about this. They're just very close to passing a, a new law. They're waiting for two more states in India to come on board. And in this new law that they will pass, they will look back into your history, back, going back to the 60s and 50s, to find out if you ever were Hindu. And if you were and you converted, then they're going to come to you and say, you have an opportunity to convert back. And if not, we're going to put you in one of those camps. And so it's serious, very serious what's going on. And Satish has told me, he says, um, he, he says, I have a lot of sleepless nights. And I think, I appreciate the honesty. Because this is not academic. See, I read this and read what Paul's going through, and I go, wow, Paul, that was amazing. But really, does it ever really hit me that this could be me? This could be us. Because we have brothers and sisters all over the world where this is their history. It's, it's not our history. It's Paul's history. 
when we have brothers and sisters all over the world, this is their history. They're living this right now. And they're having to deal with this. What rights do I have as a citizen to say, this is illegal? And can I do more than that? Is that as far as I can go? Pray and say, my civil rights, civil liberties must be upheld. Is there anything more that I can do? Well, there's been lots written on this. We have one of our early um, church, or not church, um, one of our, the early fathers of the nation, Samuel Rutherford, he wrote extensively on this. And then a more recent person, Francis Schaeffer, he picked up where, where Samuel Rutherford left off and fully agreed with him. And in summary, Rutherford said, and Francis Schaeffer in, in his book, um, um, Christian Manifesto, wrote that the first thing that we have the right to do is to protest. And they didn't mean violent protest, but just to protest, to, to say, I disagree. Just, just, just um, nonviolent protest. To maybe sue the, sue the courts. To, I mean, to go into court and sue a particular government entity, which we do. And that's okay. When government's wrong, we have the legal system that's there so that you can even sue government if we need to do so. And Rutherford said, do that, protest. And if protest doesn't work, Rutherford said, Flee if you can. Well, that's why a lot of people came here to this continent to begin with, because they were fleeing what was going on in Europe. And then if fleeing doesn't work, as a last resort, Rutherford and Francis Schaeffer both said, fight. Fight in self-defense. Whereas Norman Geisler and Robertson McQuilkin, who both have written, as I said, extensively on ethics, they would be in agreement and say, you can protest, Nonviolently, and you should try to flee if you can. It's not always possible to flee. And if you've protested and that doesn't work and fleeing and you can't, then refuse to obey and suffer the consequences. But do not revolt. Now, the reason that they come to that place is because it's very clear what God has said in Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter 2. I'm not going to read those passages, but I just want to summarize the highlights of Romans 13. Four basic statements. Number one, be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's pretty clear. Number two, all of them that exist are established by God. Every government is established by God. Number three, resistance to authority is opposition to God and receives condemnation. And number four, rulers are a cause of fear for bad behavior, not for good. Those are the basic points of Romans 13. Be in subjection to governing authorities. All of them that exist are established by God. Resistance to authority is opposition to God and receives condemnation. And rulers are a cause of, for fear for bad behavior and not for good. But is it when an established government is no longer functioning under the approval of God, because all of them have been established by God, that doesn't mean all of them are approved by God. Because God does not necessarily agree with everything that's going on all the time, even though every government has been established by God. So when a government is clearly no longer functioning as God intended for that government to function, what does God do to change the government? I was asking myself that. What does God do to change that government? One... Very clearly in scripture, war. He uses another nation to bring an erring nation back to where it needs to be or even to wipe it out. And so we see God-ordained wars all through scripture where God is using one nation to correct another nation, even though both nations have been established by God. God also uses free and fair elections. We've seen that throughout history. God uses citizen opposition. The question is, does he use citizen revolt? So we see citizen opposition. Daniel was opposed and refused to obey. His friends, the same thing. The midwives in Egypt, the same thing. We can go through and find several different instances in Scripture where people said, I can't do this. And so they opposed. They protested. But did they revolt? We'll get to that in a minute. And finally, sometimes God uses direct divine intervention. We saw that in the Old Testament where the Assyrian army came against Jerusalem. 
And the, the king took the letter that had been written at um, commander and put it before God and said, God, look what's happening here. And in that night, the angel of the Lord came and, and killed 185,000 men of that army, and they went home in defeat. Just direct divine intervention. We see that God does that. He is fully prepared to do so. Now, I want to just point out some things and just continue on this thought a little bit longer, then we're going to get back to the text. So looking at what Geisler had to say, because I've always appreciated him. I had him for a number of classes in seminary, and he was just always so clear thinking, and, and it was helpful. You just make things simple and clear. And he was a man who, who protested injustice and wrong. In fact, once, um, I think it was once a week or once a month, I forget. It might have just been once a month. Um, he protested personally, a faculty member at Dallas Seminary. He's the only one that was doing it. But he'd get in his car with a bunch of signs and invite anybody that wanted to join him to drive up just a couple minutes away from the seminary to um, an abortion clinic and protest outside the abortion clinic. And I joined him on several occasions. And we would march on the side, sidewalk with our signs and, um, and protest, not knowing if God was using it, but we were doing it. And in fact, God does use that. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, many years ago, we had a um, the students at his hill, I wasn't on staff at the time, they got all fired up against abortion, and there was nothing they felt like they could do about it, and, and they go, well, what can we do? There's really nothing we can do. And so they came up with the idea, well, let's just have a march against abortion in comfort. And they go, well, there's not an abortion clinic in comfort. We know that, but we've we got to do something. And so they made their signs, and they marched around the park in comfort. And um, later on, news got out, that Planned Parenthood was planning on putting an abortion clinic in comfort. And when that took place, they go, you know, there's just too much opposition and comfort for an abortion clinic. <laughs> Who knew? And so God used a protest where there was nothing even to protest in the community, to our knowledge, but God used it to, to stop that from happening. So God doesn't, certainly, um, and again, it was civil, it was nonviolent, and it was legal. Here's some things that Geiser says, and you think whether you um, agree with him, I'm not trying to convince you one way or another. He says, if it is the legitimate civil disobedience, if it is, if, I'm sorry, it is legitimate civil disobedience to flee, if possible, from an oppressive government and not to fight it. Israel fled from Egypt, and Obadiah and Elijah fled from wicked Jezebel. But none of them engaged in a war against the government. So whenever a government is tyrannical, tyrannical, a Christian should refuse to obey its compulsive commands to do evil, but should not revolt against it because it is unbiblical commands that, that permit evil. This does not mean, of course, that we should not peacefully, legally, and actively work to overcome oppression. It simply means that we should not take the law into our own hands, since the authorities that exist are established by God, Romans 13.1. And when we cannot accept their, their command to do evil, then we must either flee or submit to the punishment. Some have argued that the Bible commands us to rescue the innocent. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who have been taken away to death, and on this basis they insist that it is right to disobey government when innocent lives are at stake, such as the Jews in Nazi Germany or the unborn in societies in which abortion is legal. But there are several problems with this position. And the main thing he's going to say is that it may be right to oppose a, um, a government like the Nazis, not seeking to, to overthrow it, but to oppose them. And that's not the same thing. Um, uh, there's several reasons why it's not a good comparison to abortion. And then he brings up the Reformed tradition, and he says, the Reformed tradition, springing from John Calvin's teachings, accepts revolutions against an oppressive government. This was the this view was stated by Samuel Rutherford and repeated by Francis Schaeffer. Our own American founders, rooted in the natural law tradition of John Locke, also argued for a just revolution. And then quoting from the, um, the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson, he says, Governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever... Any form of government becomes destructive of these ends. It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object convinces a design to reduce them under 
absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. This declaration, Geiser says, manifestly pro proclaims a belief in just revolutions against unjust governments. The grounds of such revolutions are based in God-given morals such as life, liberty, and, and happiness. When government becomes destructive of these ends, then it is the, the right of the people to alter and abolish it, according to um, Jefferson and Rutherford. Francis Schaeffer wrote and said, if the state deliberately is committed to destroying its ethical commitments to God, then resistance is appropriate, for citizens have a moral obligation to resist unjust and tyrannical government. And then later, when the state commits Ill illegitimate acts against a corporate body, such as a duly constituted state or local body or even a church, there are two levels of, re of resistance, protest and then, if necessary, force employed in self-defense. Okay, so that's the historical reformed position starting with John um, Calvin, reflected in our founding fathers and also in Francis Schaeffer. But Geisler comes to the position, and this is the next heading in his book, Revolutions Are Always Unjust. He says, God gave the sword to the government to rule, not to the citizens to revolt. God exhorts against joining revolutionaries. He gives scriptures for each of these. Revolutions are consistently condemned by God. Moses was judged for his violent act in Egypt. <clears throat> Israel did not fight Pharaoh, but fled from him. Jesus exhorted against using the sword. Jesus spoke against retaliation. So how to respond to oppression. Geiser says, obey its laws under God. Pray for oppressive governments. Work peacefully and legally to change it. Disobey oppressive commands. Flee oppressive governments. And patiently endure sufferings. Then he asks this question. If some wars are just, and they are, he argues for that, why not some revolutions? And he answers, wars and revolutions are not in the same category. Just wars are fought by God-ordained governments to which he gave the sword. But revolutions are fought by citizens to whom God did not give the sword against God-ordained governments. God never gave the sword to citizens to use on their government. He gave it to governments to use on rebellious citizens. Just wars are waged against another nation that is aggressing against one's own. Revolutions are against one's own nation. They are, in effect, fatal family feuds. In a revolution, we are, as it were, killing off our own kin. In opposing the government God established, one is therefore opposing God who established it. Just wars, on the other hand, protect one's country against aggression by another and are fought in self-defense. And so then he gives what many of us would not like to hear his, his conclusion, in all honesty, given the biblical criteria, it is not possible to justify the American Revolution. So, like I said, I'm having to think through these things like I've never had before. Maybe you are too. And I'm not there. Um, I, I agree with just about everything you said. He even, I didn't read it, but he goes back and he says, the only time you can find a revolution against an established government in Scripture is when um, they assassinated Athaliah, Queen Athaliah, and gave the throne back to a descendant of David. And Geisford said that exception doesn't count um, because they were trying to keep um, the Davidic line intact so that the Messiah would come. Now, I understand what he's saying, but I don't agree with it. Because when you look at the Davidic line, and that line, Joash, the, the son of David that they were keeping alive so that he could take the throne of David, thinking that it had to come through Solomon, and, that, and they were saying that is the only living descendant, it, it could, he couldn't have been the only living descendant. There's no way. And um, they, they were operating under that presumption, it seemed, 
but there's just no way. And we also know that when Jesus, in fact, was born, the line of Joseph was through that son that they were trying to protect and that they killed Athaliah in order to put that particular son on the throne. That's Joseph's line. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. So Jesus could not have sat on the throne because of Joseph. Joseph was not his father. Jesus had a claim to the throne because of Mary. And the line of Mary did not go through that one son that they assassinated Athaliah in order to put him on the throne. So that doesn't mean that they were wrong to assassinate Athaliah. But it means Geiser was wrong to say they had to in order to preserve the line of David. They didn't. Jesus came through a separate line that had nothing to do with Athaliah and that little boy that they put on the throne. He came through another son of David, not Solomon, but Nathan. And that's the line of Mary, and that's the line that gave Jesus the right to sit on the throne, as I understand it. Texas was founded by revolution as well as the United States. You may not have known that, some of you. If you're a Texan, you do know that. And the reason that, that and I understand um, that this took place is because General Santa Ana, who was the duly elected president of Mexico, once he became president, shredded the Mexican Constitution. And there were a lot of people from all of the United States and all over Europe who had moved to Mexico to be Mexican citizens. Texas was Mexico. And they were loyal Mexican citizens. They did not move to Texas to overthrow Santa Ana and to start a state or to start a separate country. They moved to Mexico to be loyal Mexican citizens. And that was only their intent. They never came here to form a revolution. But when Santa Ana shredded the Constitution, they go, he was not elected for this. He has thrown out all the laws and made himself king, basically. And so the revolution was over that. And it resulted in us becoming another country. But they felt that they had the legal right as loyal citizens of Mexico to stop what was taking place. I understand that's the same thing that the American revolutionaries were thinking. They go, England is violating the law. And they were. We don't hear about it much, but not only were they not giving representation where they were taxing, but they were not giving due process when they were electing people, when they were arresting people. They had prisoner ships stationed off the coast of the, of the United States, the eastern seaboard, and they were rounding up people and putting them in those ships with no due process whatsoever. And they were loyal British citizens. It was against the law what they were doing. And so it, it, it got bad enough to where now they're, they're even, even force is being used against them in other ways. And finally, the citizen says, we have no recourse here but to separate from them. They didn't want it to be by, by virtue of war. That was thrust on them. So I personally am not at a place yet of saying that revolution is never right. But I do agree that there is no problem with appealing to our civil liberties and even suing government in order to insist that the rights, the laws be upheld, as Paul was doing. McQuilkin writes and says, the Christian is responsible to honor those in authority and to pray for them. Amen. I agree with all these things. The Christian is responsible to obey the civil laws and authority. Yes. The Christian is responsible to pay taxes. The Christian is responsible to practice justice and mercy. In order to fulfill our responsibility to practice justice and mercy, the Christians should study the scriptures to determine God's view on any specific area that arises, any specific issue that arises. The Christian must study the needs of the community. Christians should vote. The Christian is in a democracy and abdicates his responsibility for seeking a just and merciful society when he deliberately fails to vote. The Christian should voice what he believes in personal conversation, letters, articles, sermons, letters to the editor as opportunity affords. The Christian may work on behalf of candidates to whom he has confidence. Sometimes he may, it may be appropriate for the Christian to engage in nonviolent dissent. 
Legal action on behalf of a just cause is one of the most potent instruments for social change in society whose public and private values are increasingly being set aside by judicial order. And finally, special vocation. Some Christians may be called to professional service in correcting physical and temporal ills. It's a good thing to do that. What is the role of government ultimately? To restrain evil. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that's really all it talks about. And one of the problems that we have, at least in the United States, is because that's how our Constitution was written. That government has limited powers. And basically it is there to protect its people from foreign invaders and to ensure that justice and liberty are preserved. A second purpose of government, some would say, I don't, is promoting human welfare. And even McQuilkin says a minimal amount of government could conceivably achieve that protection. But when the purpose of promoting welfare is introduced, the potential for expanding government seems limitless. Exactly. And that's what's happening right now. Our government was not established to ensure that we stay healthy. Pure and simple. Our government was not established to make sure that every person stays well and nobody gets COVID-19. That is not the purpose of our founding government. Our founding articles have nothing about plague and sickness or anything else. I remind young people sometimes that in the early days of our country, even all through the 20th, up until about maybe the early part of the 20th century, whenever there was a natural disaster in our country, federal government never got involved. Federal government didn't step in and rebuild Chicago when it burned. Federal government didn't go to San Francisco and rebuild San Francisco when it was leveled by earthquakes. Had nothing to do with it because it wasn't its job. Federal government didn't build any seaports. Federal government didn't build any railroads. Those were all private enterprise because our Constitution limited government, and we tried to stay with it. So every seaport, every railroad was built with, with independent private sector money. We did very well like that. And government just continues to say, well, our concern is for the children. Our concern is that they be educated properly, whatever. There's nothing in our Constitution about hospitals, education, taking care of the sick, educating people. None of that's in our Constitution. But once you start saying the purpose of government is the welfare of the people, then government just grows, grows, keeps growing. Because there's always another need that you can find that government needs to take care of. I won't read more than I have here, but one interesting quote, um, Alexander Fraser um, Teitler, historian, jurist, and judge advocate of Scotland, said this, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can exist only until voters discover they can vote themselves out of the public treasury with the result that democracy always collapses over a loose fiscal policy, always to be followed by dictatorship. Amazing times that we're living in. Now, that's all I want to say about that. <laughs> it is a time to pray. It is a time to truly seek the Lord. I hope we never see repeated what we saw this past week. Ugly, vile, ungodly, uncalled for. But we're in a time when it is, um, we're not moving in the right direction as a nation politically, but we should not um, resort to violence. I, for one, do not believe we are anywhere near that point. Now, I wouldn't be totally unhappy um, if we could flee <laughs> as a state. Um, but that's probably not going to happen. In the meantime, we should be involved praying, praying, praying. And voting, even though it's getting to the point where we can't trust the, um, the voting system anymore, we should still vote. I've never been all that involved, really haven't been involved in lobbying, except on one occasion as a homeschool assignment, uh, we were exposing our kids and other homeschoolers to what the lobbying process looks like. And so we made a trip to um, Austin and met with a young Christian state lawmaker. 
and it was his first term in office. And I'll never forget that. It was powerful. And he said, I'm a family man. I have a small family business. And he says, I never knew how difficult this job would be. And the man's standing there almost crying. And he says, please pray for me. I signed up for this willingly because I wanted to make a difference, because I was concerned about what I was seeing going on in our state. He says, but I never knew how I'd be attacked, how my family would be attacked, how my family business would be attacked. He goes, it is very, very hard. Please pray for us. And that really moved me. And I I have been much more diligent about praying um, for our elected officials since that time. I'm glad that I had that experience. And as I've said, it's not just about us here in the United States. We have brothers and sisters around the country, around the world, that are living this out now, as Paul was living then. So moving on, just a few minutes that we have left. The next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble. So he ordered the Sanhedrin council to come together. This is the first time we see this in Scripture. Every other time they've come together, it's been their idea. This time, a Roman's telling them, we're going to have a meeting. So they may not have been ready for it. They may not even had even had time to put on their regular um, clothing that they would put on for such an official thing. Um, and it may have just been a very quickly, hastily called meeting. And that would seem the case because when they come together, it says in chapter 23, and Paul, looking intently at the council, he starts his own defense without them even saying anything. Normally in proceedings like this, they would make the charges. They would make the accusation. That's what they did with Jesus. That's what they did with Peter and John. That's what they did with Peter and the apostles. The Sanhedrin would say, these are the charges. They didn't do that this time with Paul. They didn't have any charges. They just hate him, and they want him dead. And so Paul starts. It's like, well, nobody's going to say anything. I guess I'll say something. And he says, I've lived all my life before God with a perfectly good conscience. And amazingly, the high priest has somebody standing next to him slug him in the face. Well, that gets Paul riled, as it would anybody. And he goes, you whitewashed wall, God's going to strike you. And then somebody says, you just talk bad about the high priest. And Paul goes, didn't know he was a high priest. Well, how could he not have known? And so some people look at this and say, Paul knew. Well, I'm going to take Paul at his word. He didn't know. So maybe the high priest didn't have all of his high priestly stuff on because it was a hastily called meeting. Maybe, you know, Paul, his eyesight was really bad. You know, historians say he had bad eyesight. Maybe he just didn't see it. I don't know. But I take him at his word. Maybe, some would say, he's just being sarcastic and saying, I didn't know a high priest would do something like that. But I take him at his word. He didn't know it was the high priest. Now, why would the high priest have him hit in the face for saying, I've lived with a perfectly good conscience? Apparently, the Greek here indicates that he's talking about before um, civil government, before religious government, when it comes to, to those kinds of issues, what Judaism would expect of me, what Rome would expect of me, says perfect conscience. Okay, that's doable. And I can see where the high priest would not have even liked that because he, he saw Paul as somebody who is totally opposed to Judaism, which is not true. Boom, hits him in the face. Has somebody hit him in the face. Some would say that Paul, maybe even speaking of his, of his conscience truly before God in all matters, because in Philippians, Paul says that as to the righteousness found in the law, I have have lived a blameless life. And so see, because an unbeliever can seek to live with a good conscience. Until God convicts them of their sin, they can have a good conscience. It's hard for us to imagine sometimes because we've been convicted of our sin, and we go, can anybody, an unbeliever, truly live with a good conscience? And Paul would say, yes. As a good con- as an unbeliever, he lived as, as to this to this my whole life. He says, "I've lived with a good conscience." But we also know, as a Christian, according to Hebrews ten, that when you do place your faith in Christ, He cleanses your conscience. But I don't think Paul is talking about that personally, because he says, "My whole life I have lived with a good conscience." He's not just talking about a cleansed conscience, but living with a good conscience. 
Priest didn't like it. Priest had him hit. Now, this priest was an awful man. His name is Ananias. He was one of the worst high priests, apparently, that Israel ever had. Um, he was in the, in the practice of robbing from the other priests in order to make himself rich. And he had a personal group of assassins on his payroll to go around and kill anybody that he didn't, want, didn't like. Can you imagine? That's the high priest, paid assassins on his payroll. And God does fulfill what Paul says here. God's going to strike you down. Nine years later, this high priest, Ananias, will be himself assassinated because he is so hated by the Jewish people. So Paul goes, I'm not going to get a fair trial here. I mean, I open up my mouth, say nothing wrong, and the high priest is having me hit in the face. There's no trial here. This is a kangaroo court. So Paul looks around. Eyesight couldn't have been too bad. And he goes, there's some Pharisees and there's some Sadducees. So he goes, okay. And so he goes, I'm a Pharisee. And he was. And he goes, and I believe in the hope um, uh, for, the, for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm on trial. And ultimately he was. Because Paul was running around telling everybody the Messiah came, was crucified, and rose again from the dead. It's the truth. Well, bomb goes off in the room. And so the Pharisees are going, how can we condemn him? He's one of us. And he believes in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees are going, we don't believe in a resurrection. And so in verse 8, the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, nor is there an angel, nor is there a spirit. And that's why they're sad, you see. Can't, you know, <laughs> I inserted that. What a way to live. No resurrection, no angels, no spirit. You don't even have a spirit. So they were the theological liberals of the day. They believed everything, they believed nothing. But they were in league with the Romans. They liked the Romans, and the Romans liked them. And so that's what's motivating them. They don't want to ever get sideways with Rome. Pharisees were the theological conservatives of the day. So there's a great uproar, and they are ready to tear Paul apart again. And the Roman commander one more time had to get him out of there. And then another time, coming up in the rest of the chapter, I'll just take it, I'm not going to get into all the details of it, Paul hears a conspiracy. His sister's son, Paul's nephew, we didn't even know Paul had a sister or had a nephew, shows up in the barracks and says, Uncle Paul, got a, I, I heard something you need to hear. What's that? They're going to try and kill you. Next, they're going to call another Sanhedrin meeting because that one didn't go so well. They got 40 guys under an oath that they won't eat or drink anything until they've killed you. They're going to assassinate you. Whoa. So Paul says, let's have a prayer meeting. No. Paul says, let's appeal to Rome once again. And so he says to the commander, come here. This boy, my nephew, has something to say to, he said to appeal to the centurion, it goes to the commander. So the centurion takes him to the commander. The commander takes him by the hand, takes him away to a private place and says, tell me what you heard. Forty men are going to kill Paul. Guy goes, okay. Now, you can see the hand of God in all this. How did that boy hear about that? Why was that commander so inclined to listen to him? And then why did he move so quickly on the spot that night, calls together a huge contingency of soldiers, spearmen, and cavalrymen, and as many as 470 people, and they got Paul out of there on the spot. Amazing. So God used all this from a boy who overhears what he's been, what's being said. One thing many people observe all through the Gospels and into Acts, no Roman centurion or commander is ever presented in a bad light. Isn't that interesting? The bad people are the Jews with their religious system, the Jewish authorities, and other people, secular guys, who are concerned about their money, their profits over idolatry. But the Roman government is consistently represented in a positive light. And it is the government, soon to be, not yet, but soon to be, of Nero. Wow. None of these guys were good guys. But on the lowest level, man, they were functioning pretty well. The commanders, the centurions, every one of them, no exceptions, presented in a positive light. I think that should say something to us today. At the highest levels, we're pretty upset about things that are going on in this country. But day to day, how we're living our lives, things are pretty good. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about the federal government. But that doesn't mean it's all a rotten bunch of apples. There's some good things going on. And there's some good people 
in government and even local government that are doing a fantastic job. Now, let me just wrap this up with some observations. Jesus, uh, by the passage ends with Jesus coming and encouraging Paul, stood at his side and said, take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must be a witness at Rome. And then the message from the nephew and Paul's whisked away to Caesarea. So I just want to make three quick observations here. We're out of time. Number one, don't speak glibly. I'm speaking to myself here. Don't speak glibly about how God is in control and working everything for good. I can't be glib about the sovereignty of God and working everything to good for good when I get off the phone from my friend Satish and see how many sleepless nights he's having. And see, I've never suffered. I've never been beaten for my faith. Satish has. Beaten and left for dead. I've never gone through that. Paul, at least twice, had to have Jesus show up personally and say, it's going to be okay. And this is another one of those occasions where Jesus personally shows up and says, Paul, I've got this under control. But it is no light thing to face the possibility of great suffering. It is true that God is sovereign. And it is also true that suffering is not fun. Paul was troubled enough that at least twice Jesus had to appear to him because Jesus knew he needed a direct appearance, a direct vision from himself to help him through the trials. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. He says that because our, there's a lot for our hearts to be troubled about. Second point is politics and Christianity. It is good and right to insist that government acts legally and to insist that our civil liberties are protected. But secondly, liberty is more important than government focusing on health and welfare. We need to be very careful to make sure that we are not making an idol out of liberty, health, happiness, life, any of it. But especially not health. In terms of government, we would put the emphasis where God does. Civil justice, protection from attack by others, and not the general welfare of the people. But I would add this when it comes to politics and Christianity and our concern for our civil liberties and that they're being lost. And this is something God's just been speaking to me loudly about lately. Am I as concerned about my own Christian liberty? And I mean in Christ, freedom from sin. Because that's the greatest gift I've ever been given. It is nice, wonderful to live in a country where we have had so much freedom, and we still do. And it is disheartening to see those liberties taken away. That is nothing in comparison to what Christ has accomplished for us to free us from sin and to have freedom in Christ and how quickly and easily we allow ourselves to go into bondage. While preaching, we need to protect our civil liberties. And how many Christians are not free from sin? I've been really convicted over this. So I told Patsy just the other day, I said, there's a lot of things that I, I need to fast from. The, one of the, purpose, the main purpose of fasting is just to spend time with God, right? But another thing, you know what fasting does? It helps break any bondage that you have in your life. And for a while... Say this to my shame, my dear wife has said, I think you're addicted to TV. I don't think I am. But when the wife says that I am, I shouldn't just blow it off. I'm fasting from TV. And I've spent the first, I've gone a whole week at home with a TV in the house without watching any of it. It's been a great week. Last night we watched a little bit of basketball because Patsy's nephew is on the team playing, college team, playing a little college basketball. I won't watch the Spurs. <laughs> it's been a good week. And I haven't been going through withdrawal. I'm not having a nervous twitch. 
don't think I am. It's been a great week. I gave a list of other things. Started out with TV, ended with sweet tea. And because um, everybody thinks I'm addicted to tea as well. All my point is here, I hope we are much more zealous about protecting our freedom in Christ from sin. Much more zealous about that than we are about protecting and being concerned for our civil, civil liberties being lost. Freedom in Christ is a much bigger deal. And too many Christians are living in bondage to sin. I just got finished talking about this this week with the second year students where Paul says, do not any longer be enslaved by sin, but present yourselves, the members of your body, to Christ as instruments of righteousness. And finally, why is God spending all of this time in the last book of Acts where there's very little stuff substantively to talk about? Honestly, this is not like talking on Ephesians or Galatians where you're going, man, every single word. But it's historical narrative and you're just going, there's not much history taking place here. Paul's in prison and it's going to last a long time. We got all these chapters. What's it about? And it occurs to me. Again, it shows me how my priorities are wrong. I can be more focused on civil liberties than I can on spiritual liberty. Why did God in his wisdom and sovereignty inspire all of these chapters about Paul being arrested and put in prison and nothing is really going on? Writing a few letters, praise God for that, that's pretty significant. But here's the deal. During that time, the gospel is being spread. God is setting the table for Paul to talk to people in the highest levels of authority that he would never have had a chance to talk to otherwise. And the spread of the gospel is a huge thing. We have the missions committee take turns every Sunday and come up and talk about what's going on with the missionaries that we're supporting. And sometimes I kind of go, they talked long enough now. Let's get on with things. Maybe you have the same thought. And I'm rebuked by that. As I, as I see, this is one of the lessons from these last chapters of Acts. The whole book, but really the last chapters especially. It is not boring. It is not a waste of time to talk about the spread of the gospel. It is a big thing. The spread of gospel is huge. We have missionary moments to celebrate this. And that, the spread of the gospel, ought to be the biggest reason we're concerned with the lockdowns. Not because my civil liberties might be violated, but because I'm concerned about the spread of the gospel. I don't want the gospel to be hindered from being spread throughout this world. That's all I've got. I'll pray. God, I thank you that you are in control of this world, and we are stupid apart from you. I don't know, God, none of us do how to think about what's going on and what our role is beyond prayer and voting and peaceful protest. If it's ever right to revolt, God, I don't know the answer to that. And I know, Lord, that you do. And I pray that we would be in every way governed by your spirit. We acknowledge that what we saw this week take place in Washington didn't look like your spirit. It looked ugly. It was vile, God. It was, it was an embarrassment, a shame to the name of Christ if that was done in the name of Christ. And we want to be people who don't bring shame to your name. That we conduct ourselves in all things, God, as, as your people, as lights in a dark world. And I thank you, God, that you give us wisdom and grace for that. I pray that we not be flippant and cavalier, God, about you working all things together for good when we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering greatly, and we may be part of that at some point, but that we would be sober-minded and take up the armor of God that you've given us in Christ, and that we would clothe ourselves, God, with Christ and with righteousness. We thank you, God, that we can. I pray that we would be much more concerned with our own spiritual liberty and freedom from sin than we would about the loss of civil liberties while not being unconcerned about that. And I do thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that the gospel is being spread. We can't see it all, but we know that you are still active and you're working in this world. We thank you for that. I pray that you'd make us bold and clear in making the most of every opportunity you give us to make Jesus known. In Christ's name, amen.